Well, thank you, Deirdre. Thank you, everybody, for coming tonight as we continue this series. It's a really incredible scene that we see here with the crucifixion of Jesus. Obviously, this is one small uh, part of this broader scene that's contained here in Luke chapter 23, which is really the chapter that contains the death of Christ. And really that full story you have, Luke goes to great lengths to show us an innocent man condemned. A sham trial where it's very clear everyone can see he's innocent, but somehow he's getting railroaded into the death penalty and is going to be killed. This innocent man who gets shamed at his trial, who gets paraded through the streets where people try to shame him, he's, he has to carry his cross all the way to where he's about to be executed, um, and he can't. His, he gives out. He, he, he doesn't even have the strength to carry the cross. The other criminals can, but Jesus cannot. Just being ridiculed and harassed and shamed the whole way through at his trial, on the way to the cross, and then here at the cross. Just the fact that he has a cross, right, is a huge sign of shame in the Roman world. A Roman citizen would never be executed this way because it's too shameful. And then the companions on either side of him. All the Gospels contain this account that he was killed next to two criminals. He doesn't even get his own execution, right? Like, he's not even that big of a deal that the Romans are willing just to execute him alone, but rather he gets thrown in on a scheduled execution of two other criminals. This guy is just like all the rest, ashamed and alone and really condemned. And you see this crowd around him uh, trying to heap on more and more shame on him. Is this really the king of the Jews? And Luke really wisely is really, and, and very adeptly as a, as a writer, giving this picture of deep irony right throughout the story. Right, Everyone keeps saying, you know, are you the king of the Jews? Can't you save yourself not seeing what he's actually doing? Or even the fact that they're mocking him by putting that placard above his head saying, the, the king of the Jews. You know, they, they keep mocking him. But as we know the story and as the story continues to unfold, this is exactly who he is the whole time. He is the king of the Jews and he is saving everyone. Even though throughout this story, he looks unable to save. And they keep pointing that out to him again and again and again. Right? Why can't you save yourself? Why can't you fix any of this? Who are you? Why can't you save? And as you we're confronted with the story, and as we're confronted with the Gospels and all these narratives we've been going through, right? It really is. I mean, who is this Jesus? And who did the crowd really think that he was? What were they expecting? And what do we see in them as they watch Jesus crucified, right? And, and Luke shows us different groups here at the crucifixion of Jesus. And you have some different groups. You have the people who are watching, and they're described in a few places. They've been at the trial watching. They've been at the road watching. They've been following this trial, following the death of Jesus, this whole story for a long time, right? This is probably a lot of the same crowd that he has been feeding, that have seen the miracles. I mean, they want to see what's going to happen, right? But they're staying distant. They're not jeering him necessarily, but they're also not helping him. They just want to stay back and watch and see what Jesus is going to do. You've got the soldiers who are both mocking him and also entertaining themselves throughout all of it, just gambling over his clothes. A really interesting 
you know, details to be given, right? The, the soldiers seem just so disinterested. This is just any other execution. Who cares? You know, who is this guy? And then you have the rulers who are vindictively ridiculing Jesus. And really, when you see that compared, and Luke wants you to kind of compare these rulers to Jesus, they are heaping it on Jesus here on the cross, where Jesus on the cross is asking the Father to forgive. This compassion of Christ and this just callous cruelness of the religious leaders of Israel, right? And then you have the two criminals themselves. And there are two responses. Luke is the only one who gives this response of the one criminal. The other gospel accounts say that he was crucified with two criminals. Luke's the only one that gives us this interchange between Jesus uh, and the criminals on the cross. And a little side note, right? It's probably because Luke's the only one who actually has eyewitness testimony of the event, you know, because the other ones are written more by the disciples themselves, and none of them were there. They all abandoned Jesus at the cross, so they had to hear about all of this later. Where Luke is getting a lot of his information from Mary and from people who are actually there, and this can get the details of the conversation that Jesus actually had as he died. And here you have the one mocking Jesus still, even though he is under the same sentence, facing the same fate decides to join in with the crowd that's mocking this guy and mock him still. I mean, the guy, I mean, he can't breathe, but he's going to use his breath to ridicule and mock Christ along with everybody else. And then you have the other criminal who rightly sees Jesus, right? And that's what Luke really wants to point out. Like, this guy sees Jesus rightly and says, no, this, this is an innocent person suffering in the place of, of our, of in our place, in our stead. And he sees Jesus rightly and he responds rightly to Christ. Luke and the gospel authors are really going to great lengths to show us Jesus. And this is really one of the interesting things about Christianity compared to other religions, right? The, the gospels are not recording Jesus' teachings as much as they're going to great lengths to show you Jesus, this isn't about recording everything he said so that we could follow it, but rather just trying to show us who Jesus is and how he confronts the world's expectations of him. Because we all have various perspectives of God. We all have various perspectives of Jesus Christ. Everybody in this world has an idea about God, has an expectation about God, has an expectation, an understanding, or a belief about Jesus. And whatever that expectation is of God will then shape the actions that we do, and it shapes our posture, our attitudes, our orientation towards God, depending on what we think of him, or at least what we expect of him. There's a Christian author, Sky Jathani, who wrote a book uh, several years back that kind of went through various religious perspectives or postures towards God, and I think they're helpful because then you see them here in the crowd, and you see them just in ourselves, in our own culture, in our own lives. Um, the first posture he kind of gives is this posture of a life over God. That's one posture that we can all take. I can stay at a distance. I can look down upon God. This would really be within the kind of modern secular world. A lot of traditional religion today, traditional denominational would kind of have this general perspective. It's a real modern perspective, a perspective of I'm going to evaluate God based on my own 
cultural beliefs and truths. I will decide, right, if God fits the various expectations I have of him or not. And in that case, when he does, when God does fit my cultural expectations of him or what I think or believe, I'll follow that part of God or I like this parts of God or I believe in God if, as long as he's fitting within the understanding that I already have of a God. If he fits that mold, if he fits that model, he fits what I want, great, I'm all in on God. If he doesn't fit, then I'm indifferent. Or I'll, at times, I'm religious, and at times, I'm not. Or partly, or I will say things like, well, look, if God would just show himself to me, I'm all in. If he would just prove himself to me, yeah, I'll totally believe in God. If he can just get through my cultural hoop or lens or whatever, well, I'm ready, sure. Again, but I have this posture towards him of where I'm over God. And I'm in this position of always evaluating and judging him and waiting on him to prove himself to me to be true or to be real. Do something great, God, and then I'll believe in you. Kind of idea. And that really is this kind of modern sensibility that we can have towards God, where we keep him at a distance. The other posture and kind of on the other extreme of things, is a life under God, which is a posture that many of us know well if we grew up religion or religious. This would be within a lot of the major religions of the world, if it's Islam, if it's Judaism, Mormonism, and traditional Christianity. But where you live a life, the whole point of my life is to live a life doing God's will. I am going to submit myself to God, and I am going to please him with everything I have. God is the one who judges the world. God's the one who's in control. God decides right from wrong. God is the one who directs everything. So my whole goal in life is to just do what God wants from me. And if I live a life for or under God, then there will be rewards. And if I don't, if I, live a, if I mess up, though, in this life, then there will be punishments and there will be suffering. Why is there bad things in my life? Because I'm not submitting myself to God's will enough. Why are there good things in my life? Because God is blessing me because I'm living this life according to him. It's a life of constant right, fear and guilt and condemnation, constant religious hypocrisies and comparing and striving and trying, but really where you just feel this burden and weight of this law over you or this God who's dissatisfied with you, or you just feel, I must always be trying to please this God. God who sits in heaven and is always judging me. The third posture he gives, which would be more kind of the modern conservative movement of Christianity, is a life that we can also live for God, very closely related to that life under, right? But this life for God would be, okay, no, I recognize all the things God has done for me, and it's all grace. And yep, he, I didn't deserve my salvation. I didn't deserve the things that he did. Yep, I see him on the cross and I see his love for me. Now I need to live a life for him. I got to pay this back however I can. I'm going to live a life that responds to God's grace in such a way that I am all in and I'm going to show the world who Jesus is. Right, this kind of posture really is strong on evangelism. Right, or very strong on like, I want to show everybody who Jesus is. I want to show this love that God has shown me. I want to really do things. I want to have a meaningful, worthwhile life of a Christian that shows all of these things. I want to please God. The Christian life is a life of service, of paying back God for what he has done. 
And then there's this other posture that this was, would be more kind of modern evangelicalism we've, we've all encountered as well and experienced, which is where you get life from God. Where you go to God whenever we're in need and he gives to you. Right? I, he gives me things. Man, I am anxious. I need peace. I will go to God and he will give me that peace. I need rest. He gives me rest. I need confidence, so I'm going to go to God and he'll give me confidence. I need salvation. He gives me salvation. I need wisdom. I'm going to, he's going to give me wisdom. We always just go to God every time we're in need. And when we're in need, we turn to him, we find him, we seek for him. You know, these are where we go to service after service or worship experience after worship experience, or if it's prayer and devotion, go to prayer and devotion all the time, but just to kind of always try to be fixing the problems that are in our lives or in our, myself. I need something from God. I go to him to get from God. And this very kind of consumerism model of Christianity where God is just kind of there as this vending machine and I just constantly am going and getting or trying to get from him, this life that I want from God. And all of us, all of our world has been shaped by these perspectives because we've, as a culture, have been shaped by religion and philosophy for millennia. Right? So, I mean, none of these things are new and none of these perspectives towards God are new. And in fact, at times, all of us have certainly fallen into one of these or some combination of these or try to hold all of these in some sort of balance, right? Um, and we bring these expectations of God or these postures to God, we bring them to our experiences and towards our seeing Jesus and in the Gospels here. And when we come to Jesus and when we see the Gospels and how Jesus interacts with people's perspectives, Jesus just kind of shatters the various groups' perspectives of him. Right? Everybody who comes to Jesus with a different posture or a different expectation, it seems like Jesus just isn't satisfying it or he's changing what those expectations were. I mean, he's such an incredible figure in history and through the Gospels because he doesn't just meet our expectations and intentions, but instead, Jesus comes to show us God's expectations and God's intentions towards us. What we see in Jesus is God's posture towards us. And what we see with Jesus and what we see with him on the cross is God's desire to be with us. This final kind of idea of life with God. This was the promise that he offers the thief on the cross. Right? That you will be with me. He didn't promise that he would take him off the cross, that they wouldn't die, that there wouldn't be any of these things. I mean, what he's hoping for, what did the thief even expect, right? I mean, I think he was expecting one day in the far off, if Christ really is this Savior and Messiah, when he sets up the kingdom, remember me, you know, when I rise. But Jesus promises him, you will be with me. And this has always been the point, all the way through. You know, we went through the Pentateuch for a few years there, right? I mean, Genesis to Revelation, this has always been God's plan and purpose, was to be with his people, he created a garden to be with his people. From this, to the very end in Revelation to this feast, when we will be dining, we will be with God in its fullness. God wants to be with us, but that doesn't fit our own expectations and intentions towards God. 
God's posture and desire to be with us doesn't fit within our posture and our desire to not be with him. Because if we're really honest, none of us really want to be with God. In fact, the natural default within all of us is to run away, to go the opposite direction of God. This default setting in the human heart is to not want to be around him. And that's what we see throughout Scripture. The whole history of Israel is that. God's people, God wanting to be with his people, and God's people running away from God. And that's in us. We're all very happy, actually, right? Living in one of those postures or in some combination of those postures. I'd rather live a life over God, constantly judging him, staying distant from him, having no intimacy with God, but rather just kind of living in my own head and cultural stuff. Or there's comfort from being in religion. Living a life under God can be very comforting at times, too, where at least I know what to do. I mean, you've given me rules and regulations, laws to follow. I would rather have that. I'd rather have God's law than to have God. I'd rather have the rules than to have him. Or it's sometimes really easy or nice to live in that life from God. I, I just want the things that he gives me more than I want him. I just want peace. I just want this sin to go away. I just want whatever it is. I just want that. But to actually want God goes very much against that natural fiber in us or the way that our human heart is created. We have this just desire to, to flee him, to run from him. Because deep down, we all feel that weight of our mistakes. We feel that weight of our sin is what the Bible would call that. That there's, we're not quite right We have messed up enough times, in enough ways, in enough things, that we feel this weight of guilt, and we feel this weight of shame, and that we know that if I was around someone that good, that perfect, I would just feel so ashamed. I could never be with someone like that, because they're so great. Why would I... I, I'm okay taking from them, I'm okay living for them, I'm okay living under them, or I'll just stay back so they'll never get to know me. But right to be intimate with something like that, the weight of our shame and our guilt is just too great. Now here's the really incredible thing, though, about God and the Gospels then, right? Jesus didn't come to just tell us that God wants us to come back to him or that God desires you to be with. He wants to be with you. So you need to do something about it and go get yourself back to God and go be with him. Rather, we believe in a God who comes to be with us. This is Jesus. From the very beginning, from Genesis on, God is constantly pursuing and dwelling with his people. And now in Jesus Christ on the cross, he makes it possible for us to dwell with him forever because he took our place and he dealt with what keeps us back. He takes on our guilt, our shame, our fear of rejection on himself. He identifies himself with us. This is unlike every other world religion. There's no prophet like this. There's no savior who does this. Every other prophet, every other religious figure, hero of the faith, martyrs, right, are 
great people. And they don't identify with the lowly. Jesus takes on that identity of the criminal. He takes on, he takes the guilt and the shame on himself that was meant for us. He, identi- he comes and takes our place and he takes the punishment that was meant for us. The things that we are most afraid of because we know we deserve it are the things that he endured on our behalf. Being mocked, being ridiculed, being rejected, being powerless, being alone. These are the things that Jesus experienced. And he didn't need to. And that's what that criminal recognized. This man is innocent. And he is going through all of this for us. He experienced the ultimate injustice on our behalf. How can I be ashamed to be with God now? If he would do this, if he takes my shame on him, and he turns those who are mocking, turns the shame back on them, I have nothing to fear. Now I know how he thinks of me. I know how God loves me, how he suffered for me, how he is with me. Right? Like that sacrificial love like this changes people's hearts and makes me no longer want to run away from God. Like this is a God I don't want to run away from anymore. A God who comes and who loves sacrificially like this. Now what does that mean then? If this gospel is true, right, and what what changes as we read these stories, what changes in the hearts of the disciples, what changes in the hearts of the criminals, what changes in our hearts, right? If this is true, and as I meditate on this, as we see Christ in this way for us, we can't stay in those wrong postures for very long, right? I can't stay indifferent and distant from this kind of a God, Because he brought me close to him, how can I stay distant from a God who goes to this length to be with me? I can't live in fear of a God like this because his love casts out that kind of fear. This kind of love, I can't be afraid of a God like this. I can't try and please a God like this because he's already pleased with me. What can I do to please him? I can't just keep coming and asking for things from him anymore because he's given me more than I could ever think or hope or imagine. He's given me everything. When we start to see Jesus rightly, it starts to really transform and change our hearts, just like the criminal on the cross, which is like Luke is continually trying to show this picture of Jesus. Those who see Jesus rightly for who he is their hearts and their lives are changed. Those expectations that we bring when we look at God, when we expect of Jesus, when we expect of him, get shattered in the face of the cross, in that face of that sacrificial love that Christ gives. God himself identifying with us, dying unjustly for us so that we can be with him. That changes people. And the things that change in us is it changes our motivations from fear to love. It changes the fruit in our lives from anxiety to peace, from harshness to gentleness, from anger to forgiveness, right? Ultimately, it brings us close to God. I can't stay distant from this kind of God. I can't stay indifferent to this kind of God, right? I can't stay indifferent towards Jesus 
you have to really have to come to some sort of conclusion when you see Jesus like this. Is he who he said he was? And if he is and he died like this, then that changes things. And it changes me. And it changes the way in which we interact with God himself.